This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Amy Barrett, Editorial Assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. In the New Year issue, we're covering the biggest ideas that you need to understand in 2021. And in the past few episodes of the podcast, We've been talking to experts who will explain these ideas in their own words. For the next in the series, I'm speaking to Daniel Freeman, a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Oxford. Daniel has been working with VR technology since 2001 and is a founder of Oxford VR, a University of Oxford spin-out company. Daniel, what types of therapy are there currently on offer? There are some fantastic therapies, uh, a number of them developed in the UK, particularly cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, which has excellent evidence for treating problems such as anxiety and depression, and forms of it also uh, used for uh, conditions such as schizophrenia. So there's a number of really good psychological talking therapies for a number of mental health conditions. Uh, But the issue tends to be uh, getting them to enough people. Why is that a challenge? Well, I think there's been a sort of fantastic recognition over the the last few years that many, many people uh, will have mental health problems. And at any one year, about one in four people uh, may have a mental health problem. Uh, So it's just a very large number. And actually, uh, there aren't so many therapists and there aren't so many therapists skilled in the most effective treatment. So if you go to the right centre, seeing the right therapist doing the right treatment, outcomes could be really good. But I think we're moving from this recognition that there are a lot of mental health problems, but what do we do next? How do we get these really good psychological therapies to more people? So you've uh, mentioned the talking therapies, but what other kind of therapies are there on offer? Yeah, so what typically with mental health problems, uh, people are either treated with medication or psychological therapy or a combination of the two of them. Uh, the main sort of evidence-based treatments tend to be cognitive behaviour therapy, but there are other therapies too. I think what's very good in the NHS is that there's a focus on, on using the therapies that have been shown to work in clinical trials that has got evidence behind them. Um, and the best therapies tend to have a very clear idea about what causes the problem, use that knowledge to develop really good uh, therapeutic techniques, uh, and then show that in clinical trials. And I think... What's, I think, 
shared, I think, across some of the most effective therapies is uh, going outside into the situations that trouble people and really making learning, new learning in those situations. So a bit more like sort of almost like having a personal trainer or a coach next to you is helping a person work through some of the problems in the situations that trouble them. Often that really tends to bring about a lot of change. Right. And so that's where VR therapy comes in. Well, exactly, because VR is about immersing you in situations. Uh, So one of the most powerful ingredients in therapy is about going out there and trying things in the situations that trouble you. And VR, you can present those situations uh, in a clinic room and you can present it in novel and different ways. And what's really exciting is that because a person knows it's a simulation, it's not real, it gives them the psychological freedom to try thinking and behaving differently. So it's actually wonderfully therapeutic. It doesn't break the spell knowing it's VR. It actually really helps people give a bit of flexibility in their thinking to try things anew. So we're finding it's remarkably powerful. That's surprising because you might think that being aware of the environment being kind of falsified is actually going to make you, um, I don't know, less likely to believe that it can apply to a real-world scenario? Yeah, I think that's probably the issue that people bring up the most to me. You know, it's not the real world, so is it going to apply to everyday situations? Uh, We've got lots of evidence that it transfers. And increasingly, the way I view it is that while you're in VR, for for the overwhelming majority of your brain, it is the real world. Your your senses, your main senses, your, your, your vision and your hearing are replaced by the digital simulation. So that's what your brain is processing. You are there. And of course, you know, I've, I've, I've seen it firsthand where you only practice something in a, in a simulation with someone and it does then immediately after when you go into real world, well, real world situation with someone transfer. And I think really, you know, the a sort of similar situation where people are even more convinced is if you're you know training to be a pilot and you're doing simulations mm-hmm. people understand that works and i think vr is the, is the same in that way that's true and you've mentioned that you know cbt is commonly used for things like depression and anxiety are those the, the mental health problems that vr is best uh, used on or are there other things no i think for pretty much most mental health conditions there is a potential for vr to be used um, the evidence uh, or where it's been used, at least at the beginning, has been anxiety disorder. So we know it works really well for that. Uh, but there's no reason it can't work for other conditions. We just need it to be tested and shown to work. So what I would highlight is that VR is not a solution in itself. You've got to develop the right content and you've got to test it. So just because it's VR doesn't mean it's going to work. You have to have really smart content. You've got to have the content developed with people with who have some of the difficulties, they influence the design. You've got to have the right theory. You've got to have the right uh, treatment techniques. But if you get it right, potentially uh, it can be used for pretty much most mental health conditions. But compared to perhaps going to see one therapist, uh, it sounds like it might be quite considerably more expensive to, to do. No, I think that what we've been doing in Oxford is pioneering automating delivery of psychological therapy in VR so that so we think for some conditions, one wouldn't need a therapist. And for some, you might just need uh, more minimal contact. And then if you automate it, there's the potential to get it to millions more people. And I think that's the excitement. We, we know if you've got a good therapist doing the right therapy, outcomes could be great. But there are too few therapists. Mm. 
Uh, there are some great schemes in the UK to increase the number of therapists, and that's great. We need more therapists. Improving access to psychological therapies in the UK is, is a, it's a brilliant change in the NHS to get many more uh, therapists trained, many more people getting the best help. But we still need other ways too. And I think VR could be a fantastic way of getting uh, really good evidence-based therapies to many more people. It's not, it's not the complete solution. We still need therapists. There are still complexities in mental health. But for certain certain things, I think it can really change it, and I I think it's coming. It will come in a number of years. It, 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 will, it will be it will be used. It works so well for the treatment of mental health problems. I think the question is just when's it going to arrive. Mm. It's kind of hard for me to vi- visualize what that kind of therapy might be like. So say I'm someone you know who's got. Um, anxiety for example and I've come to one of your studies to take part in the research and um, what actually happens when I um, you know put the VR headset on or does something happen before that point even? No so so you could put the headset on and we have a uh, virtual therapist coach called uh, Nick is uh, a Scottish accent and she'll talk you through about how to use VR and then she'll talk you through about the understanding of the, of, of the mental health problem, say it's fear of heights or something. She'll explain what causes fear of heights and what one needs to do to overcome it. And then our fear of heights program, she'll then take you to uh, the atrium of a sort of very large shopping centre and she'll say, you know, which floor do you want to start with? Do you want to go up to the first floor or the fifth floor? And you get to choose which floor you want to go to. And I'll just take you up there and each floor there'll be a, a task around fear of heights. So in a fear of heights, people fear that something bad's going to happen, that they're going to uh, fall off or they're going to throw themselves off or the building's going to collapse. So there's a whole range of tasks to bring a person right up to a height, not put up their usual defences, but to actually spend time around heights and learn that nothing bad's going to happen and actually they're going to be okay. So they form this new memory of safety. And so by the heights, it might start off that you... You get closer to the edge, but there's a balcony there, and uh, but that's sort of lowered. So you might then stand right near an edge, and then later on in therapy, you'll be going out on a, on a sort of uh, on a platform to rescue a cat from a tree. So you're doing things you could never do in the real world, uh, but in VR you can do it. So there's a, there's a playful element too, so you make it a bit more fun, although it is terrifying if you have a fear of heights. But, but there's a, there's a there's a nice contrast. People. Are on one hand terrified, but there's also a smile of delight while they're rescuing this very mournful cat from the tree in the shopping centre. And that's one of the things about VR. You can push the learning in ways you can't in the real world. Uh, so people can come on in leaps and bounds. Mm. So, so then, you know, we typically do half an hour sessions. Fear of heights, it's around six sessions, something like that. And at each session, you sort of, you know, it progressively gets more difficult. Uh, so there are harder tasks to do. But in the end, what we're trying to do is help people make new learning and get that to stick. And so you've seen patients actually using this. What is the kind of most positive response that that you've seen? Oh, lots of positive responses. So in our fear of heights trial, the average reduction in fear of heights was uh, 68%. So it's a large reduction with just two hours of therapy, uh, which means that people can... Well, fear of heights is an interesting one. It, it, often people, it's easy to avoid it, apart from work situation or family ones. So then after, people say, well, I went with my children and went on sort of, you know, go ape way up in the trees, <laughs> things they'd never have done before, and they're taking part more. And the work we're doing with people with schizophrenia, 
uh, we're working with people who find it very difficult, you know, just to uh, go into the local shop or get on the bus to go to somewhere they want to do. And then, of course, if you can free them up for anxiety where they, they don't worry about doing these things, it opens up a lot of possibilities in life. So anxiety really puts a weight on people's shoulders. And when you can help people overcome that, um, you know, you can you can see the changes in, in people's lives. And in terms of building these simulations, um, what's kind of involved from that point? And how do you go about planning what you're going to show? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, we have a very in-depth design process. We're very keen that we produce VR treatments that are at least as good as the best face-to-face therapy, if not better. So we're not interested in watered-down therapy. So we involve a lot of people. So we uh, involve people who've had sorts of difficulties. So we work with a, a wonderful mental health charity, the McPin Foundation, who helps support us bring in people who've had the difficulties. So they're involved in the design process. We'll have psychologists in my team there. We'll have VR computer scientists there. Uh, we'll have experts in sort of user interaction. So lots of people. And what we might start off with is the, is, is the target. We'll have the basic psychological principles but from then on, it's it's a huge fun part of the process designing it and all these ideas that can come from everyone. You've got to align it with the right psychological principles. You've got to think about what's this achieving therapeutically. But then there's a great interaction between lots of people suggesting stuff. Um, and then sometimes the VR programs will say, well, that's that's going to take, that's far too difficult to do that. <laughs> and other things they go, no, that bit we could definitely do. And there are things we thought too difficult. They'll say, no, that, that that's a fix. So it's a, it's a really wonderful process and often it you know there'll be a board a blank board at the beginning and the end it will be filled with you know lots of ideas and then we move to a sort of honing down uh how you actually play this out in vr uh in detail so we'll have storyboards we'll have a script we'll have all timings for different things to happen so it's a bit more like a movie at that point uh and then there's a whole bit about programming it once you've got the script all, all, all set up. So you'll do recordings of people in uh, motion capture. So you're, so we animate our computer characters using recordings of real people's movements. We obviously have actors for the sounds. Uh, there's a lot of work for the environment artists and the, and the computer programs to put this in action. So it takes uh, a lot of effort to do that. But of course, if you get this right, you've got a powerful treatment and then you've got a powerful treatment that can be scaled up so uh, I think very much it's worth the investment getting it right. Absolutely. Um, why is virtual reality the best way to do this? Because obviously there is kind of augmented reality or there's things like, you know, showing just films or, or other experiences. So why VR? Yeah, I don't think it has to be VR. I mean, I think there's, and I think there's probably stages. Uh, I like VR a lot because I think it does shut out the real world and immerses people in the, in the world that we're trying to do the therapeutic work in. So I think that, uh, I think it helps get the person to really center in that place. And I think that works, but I think later on you could do augmented reality. You could blend it. You could move from VR into augmented. That, that makes a lots of sense too. And in other work we've done, we just used this sort of mobile phone to provide reminders and things without even using a, any, any immersive elements too. So I think you could build up a whole range of different ways of doing it. So augmented, I think, could be great. Mm. Um, th- but the first steps, I think, certainly for people when they've got quite a sort of uh, 
often a quite sort of strong problem. I think we've found the VR and just shutting out the rest and getting really immersed in that super world has been really helpful. But I don't think it's the only way. Uh, you know, there's obviously lots of ways that tech could be used in mental health. And I think we need to explore that. But of course, we always need to make sure that, that it works well. And it's what people want mm. is the crucial thing too. And of course, it's difficult to kind of um, run these sort of studies, I assume, because not in other kind of scientific areas, you'd have a control group where they're not getting a particular treatment. But obviously, you couldn't withhold mental health treatment from someone who needed it. So how do you go about planning this sort of research? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting... Clinical trials are very interesting. So how you design it depends on really what's the key question you want to answer. Um, what you can't do in these trials is blind the person to receiving treatment. So you can't make it double blind where the assessors and the person receiving treatment don't know they had it. Rather like a pill, you could have... You don't know whether you've got the active one or not. But of course, if you've got a therapy, then you're involved in the therapy. So you can't blind the person. They know they're getting some form of help. Uh, but we, re- we use a, a range of designs, really, depending on what we're trying to answer. So we've got one study for severe paranoia where we're comparing uh, a sort of VR cognitive therapy to uh, equal time in VR during relaxation. So we have sort of controlled for the time in VR. And that, that really answers the question about whether it's the particular techniques we're using in VR that's helpful. But in a larger study called Game Change, we're simply testing in one group the addition of our VR therapy to standard care. And in that, that study, we're answering the question, you know, does simply adding our VR therapy help? It doesn't tell you necessarily which aspects are causing the change, uh, but it will tell you whether it helps. However, clinical trials are very interesting because we also build in something called mediation analysis where we measure some of the psychological processes that we're interested in. Uh, then we look statistically to see whether change in those processes are leading to the change in the outcome we're interested in. So there are also very interesting ways in clinical trials where you can learn not just about outcomes, but about the mechanisms leading to change uh, in the outcome. And those are sort of more explanatory trials. You can build that in. We're very keen on that. Um, So... What the the really so the methodological issue really is, is simply that you can't blind the person to knowing they get some form of help <laughs> in a psychological therapy. But other than that, uh, all the normal rigor of clinical trials uh, we can do. You said the term psychological process. Can you just explain what what that actually is? Yeah, so we're very keen to to develop psychological treatments based upon the best psychological understanding of a condition. So, for example, in that fear of heights example I was talking about, this is the idea that there's these, these misinterpretations of heights. For example, there's ideas that you're going to be put, you're going to throw yourself off heights. You don't actually want to. It's just what's called the call of the void. Lots of people would have experienced that kind of feeling almost, almost by standing by a tube train. Sometimes can feel a bit like worrying about whether they're going to sort of rush off. They don't want to, but it's a, it's a fear. Uh, and it's a cognition. And we think that's important. We also think what actually happens is you've got this cognition of fear and you build up all these defences so you avoid going near heights, for example. And therefore, you never test out your fear or you don't look at heights. Uh, and that way you think, well, I've only been saved because I put up my defences. So I've just named two psychological processes. There's, there's cognitions there and there's defences, what we call safety-seeking behaviours. So in a clinical trial, you can measure both of those processes throughout and then you can see whether change in those processes uh, predicts change in the outcome, the overall fear of heights, for example. So there's a nice way of building to trials and understanding of mechanisms. 
So if we're seeing that time in VR has can have a positive impact on our mental health, should we then be concerned that um, you know the development of VR games uh, or VR experiences could have a negative impact on our mental health? Well, I mean, I think I suppose with anything, it's always about the content. Same with social media and things like that. There's wonderful opportunities there, but there are also ways that it can cause difficulties. I think that's the same with VR. Um, it's, it's a bit like I said earlier, the, the tech itself is not necessarily an answer. It's all about the content. So uh, certainly mental health treatment, what you do is you want to show it works and also you pay attention to any sort of adverse effects or side effects. So one needs to keep that in mind. Uh, but yes, of course, with all things, there's a potential for content that is that is unhelpful and can affect people's mental health mm. badly. I think that's, that's clearly possible. Mm. And are there any side effects that you've found to this sort of therapy? Um, no, we, we haven't. So the, the one in VR yeah, that one pays particular attention to is uh, motion sickness. So if you don't, uh, depending on the type of kit and the sorts of things you get people to do in VR, you can get motion sickness and that's that's not very nice. So we try and design stuff to make sure we're not getting that. And that's one of our design sort of elements we're always paying attention to, to make sure we're not using uh, VR in ways that could bring that on. But of course... Uh, and people have had this, they use VR on phones, those sorts of uh, more basic versions of VR can bring these sorts of things on, and that's 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 not so nice. So that's probably the main one. Um, but in a large trial we're going on at the moment, we're, whole, we're, range, we're assessing a whole range of sort of more uh, sort of minor ones, really, as well, about, about whether uh, people are feeling any sort of sort of dissociation or other sorts of uh, unpleasant feelings from being in VR. On the whole, we're not picking up much of this at all, but it's crucial that we measure it. So we've got a, certainly in that uh, current trial, a large assessment going through a whole range of details. So once that trial is over, we better look at those data to see. But on the whole, it seems it's, it's, it's rare. So I started work with VR, working with people with severe paranoia, and everyone was very worried that people would get paranoid about the kit. Uh, but we didn't find that at all. We found if you explain what the kit is and its purpose to, to, to people with severe paranoia, they get it and actually rather enjoys getting access to sort of state-of-the-art VR equipment. So one has to pay attention to these sorts of concerns. One needs to uh, make sure one measures it in trials. But actually, uh, we found a real sort of positivity around VR treatments that, that I've not seen for any other sort of treatment. And are there any kind of precedents to a positive outcome or any particular types types of people, groups, um, things that you've noticed work better? Great question. So that's a question of clinical trials about moderation. Are there some factors that predict the outcome? Um, we've not found it in our studies. Um, to date, though, the studies have probably been too small to necessarily detect that sort of subgroup. And certainly for fear of heights, it's very clear it just pretty much works for everyone. Uh, but in the larger trial we're doing with patients with schizophrenia, we'd be able to look at that sort of um, uh, issue. But um, I don't think we're necessarily expecting to find it. We, we're expecting that it should work for most people to some extent, but we will only know when we've got the, when we've got the, um, the data in. So it is a good question. Um, Clearly, not everyone will respond. And if there are ways of understanding that, that could then lead to 
enhancing and improving conditions. So it's a great piece of research one does is to look, well, it's all very well, it works, but it's not working for everyone or it's not working. It could work better for some people. Why is that? And one tends to both look at the clinical trial data, but also uh, you know, talk to people who've had the therapy to learn in depth about that as well. So in the current Game Change trial, we've got um, the PIN Foundation carrying out interviews with some of the participants to really explore uh, the, that level. And we can then triangulate that with the trial outcome results. So in all psychological therapy treatment, one one is always wanted to do better. And one therefore not only uses the sort of formal trial data, but does uh, sort of more of a debrief with patients who've had it. So you can learn from that. Mm. I mean, it's mental health treatment. Obviously, we're all realising how important that area is. Uh, and there's a real passion, I think, to improve treatments and to, to listen to people who've, who've had these conditions to learn from that. And you've mentioned a, a couple of conditions. So we've talked about depression, anxiety, but also uh, paranoia and schizophrenia. Now, the, the first two are ones that we perhaps have have maybe a better understanding of. But for anyone listening who maybe doesn't quite know the details of a paranoia or schizophrenia, so that's the one that you're, you're kind of looking at next, um, could you maybe just dive into those a little bit more? Yeah, so my, my main area really uh, in research, uh, even before VR, is about mistrust. And um, that's probably quite topical at the moment where we can <laughs> see lots of mistrust around. Uh, the, there's a type of mistrust called paranoia, which is when you uh, erroneously think that others are trying to harm you in some way, that they may be uh, spreading rumours or they may physically harm you. Uh, and... Really, this is excessive mistrust. So we're interested in when people aren't trying to do that to you, because of course people can do bad things. Um, so paranoia is when you when you have the ideas, unfounded ideas that people are trying to do that to you. And there's a whole spectrum of severity in the population. So some people have it mildly. Lots of people have these sorts of thoughts, and of course that's sensible because you have to decide whether to trust or mistrust. So this is this is perfectly normal sort of psychological processing. But sometimes people can get rather too skewed to be mistrustful and sometimes that can be paranoia um, and when that becomes very severe in terms of you believe it very strongly and you get very distressed and impacts your life it can be at the level of what we call a persecutory delusion and that's the sort of the, the, the most severe end of the paranoia spectrum and that typically is considered a, a symptom of uh, mental health conditions such as schizophrenia it's not the only symptom but it's often quite a key one used in diagnosis um, so paranoia is a particular type of uh, mental health experience and it's, and it's used sometimes at the severe end to, to, as part of the diagnosis of, of conditions uh, within sort of psychosis. And so how can uh, VR therapy kind of counteract that, that mistrust? Well, we've got great evidence that it can. Um, so it is rather analogous to the fear of heights. What you've got is people who believe very strongly that when they're around other people, that they're going to do something bad to them. And therefore, typically, they, they avoid other people. They may avoid eye contact. If they're out and about, they're going to rush around. And so what we do in VR is enable people to drop these defences and find out, well, what are what is going to happen when I'm around these computer characters? Are they going to attack me and do bad things? So we get people to spend time around others in VR. We get them to make eye contact, get up close. Again, push things that you wouldn't do in the real world, but to really learn it's okay. 
And of course, the VR people are having these thoughts, they're having the paranoid thoughts, just as they would about real people, because VR triggers, triggers normal reactions. Yet they've got this conscious awareness, they know it's a simulation, they can try things a bit differently, and they can think, well, maybe these thoughts aren't quite so accurate. Maybe actually it's okay. And then we get people to then do that in the real world. And, and in that way, we build up these new memories. It's all right to be around other people. And we've got, we've got some very nice uh, initial data from a few years ago, and that's led to uh, two much larger trials that we're doing at the moment to try and to show that, that what we've seen uh, at a smaller scale level uh, will, will, will generalise, which we're pretty confident about. And so how many people could be helped by this? How many people are there currently like, affected by uh, paranoia and schizophrenia? Great question. So in the game change, what we're working on is there's a, for people with schizophrenia, uh, there's an end result that many patients get too scared to leave the house for a number of reasons. Uh, it might be just they're fearing negative judgment from others. It might be paranoia. And about two thirds of patients with schizophrenia have those sorts of difficulties. And there are over 200,000 people uh, in England alone who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So this could help uh, 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 many NHS patients. Mm. And how far away are we actually from this being an, an offered treatment, a commonly offered treatment? Well, that's another very good question. So there's different stages in treatment development. There's a whole bit about developing a treatment and showing it works. Um, and that's why I do a lot of my work. But then there's a whole area of getting something put into services and used. And and that can you know be a, a major endeavour to what's called an implementation. So you know, you've got to provide it, you've got to have staff trained to use it, uh, and th- that that can take sometimes as long as the treatment development phase. But in game change, we're trying to work very closely uh, with implementation scientists who are doing a lot of studies about what are the barriers and facilitators to get these treatments into services. Um, so we're already working very closely with NHS to try and to get adoption as fast as we can. There is no real technical hurdles here but there is a bit about getting these new treatments into services i mean i think the reality is it's going to take a few years for all this to happen um it you know it does take a lot to change systems sometimes but i think there is a a huge appetite for this kind of work Mm. and in your opinion will it ever replace human therapists uh my view really is we need more therapists. There are lots of instances where VR therapy is, is probably won't be suitable. Uh, there are lots of instances where there's a complexity there that you're going to need uh, a skilled professional involved. But I think for many people, I think there is the possibility that, that, that they wouldn't need to see a therapist and that they could do these sorts of things at home. I mean, fundamentally, you can view VR almost as an sort of educational tool and you know, if you if you want to go and give a speech at work or something, then you could practice it in VR. And, you know, it's just as a sort of learning tool. And of course, if you've also got social anxiety, then you could do the same practice and it will be even more helpful and it will and it'll make you feel better about it. So there's a nice blending between, you know, just making sure that you're doing things as well as you can do. So I think Many of us in the future probably will be using VR for, for lots of things, whether, regardless of whether you have a mental health disorder or even have a mild version. You could just use this just to sort of top up how you're performing. So I think it's a really nice way to normalise mental health problems and the need to think about mental health and to try stuff. So um, 
I said before, I think all of this is will, will come in the future. Uh, it's going to involve you know having the headsets uh, uh, at a price and at ease of use, at a quality. But I think that will happen. Exciting. Um, and I just wanted to go back to um, what you mentioned about mistrust. And obviously, we have seen mistrust is kind of on the radar currently with all this talk of uh, vaccines um, and there's a lot I'm sure you've seen online about them. Um, is there any way that you can see these two things overlapping, your current work and the current situation? Well, I've certainly been doing research with the Oxford vaccine developers here about people who are hesitant about vaccines. So we've just, we've just been reporting on some work in the general population uh, looking at how many people are, for example, mistrustful of, of the COVID-19 vaccines, but also why, uh, identifying the sorts of beliefs that drive that, and also some of the longer-term drivers of mistrust. Um, it's, you know, I, there are lots of reasons for it. There are perhaps some ways that VR could be used, Um we're not at the stage yet of doing that. I think in terms of implementation, I think at the moment we're very much focused on how do you present information, uh, accurate information, strongly and well, and what are the sorts of things that people need reassurance about. So we're at that stage really of of, uh, of thinking about vaccine hesitancy. But um, I mean, obviously, one this is this is not the main explainer of vaccine hesitancy. But of course, some people are just frightened of needles. Mm. So potentially one could, could do some things in, in VR with, with needles, for example, but there's probably lots of other ways one, one could use VR potentially. Although I think, of course, with just the, the sheer uh, scale and timing of the endeavour ahead, uh, we're probably uh, uh, not going to be using VR for that at the moment. But interesting idea. I, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I perhaps should. And I just wanted to ask if... Um, if all the work you've done over the years on this kind of thing has it what's for you uh the biggest thing that it's it's taught you about um mental health problems uh for for me i think it is two things really it's the it's the, it's the powerful learning that takes place when you can go out and practice something um and within that enabling people to have the confidence to try things anew and, and have a new curiosity about things and to try things a bit differently so it's kind of reinforced that key bit in terms of change um it's all very well and for some it's all very well sometimes talking about changes that one needs to make but actually going in there and practicing it is crucial and of course talking about it in a room uh, can be hugely helpful and part of the process of getting there but sometimes it's about the action part of of change and, and, and implementing that. That was Professor Daniel Freeman talking about exciting developments in mental health treatment using virtual reality. For more stories of science and technology innovation, including the ideas you need to know about in 2021, pick up the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine or head to sciencefocus.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Science Focus podcast, please do leave a review wherever you're listening to us. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.